As we gather this morning, many of you may have noticed a new image that is before us uh, up on the wall. Uh, It's an image that's inspired by a story from the prophet Jeremiah, who God told to go down to a potter's house and God would show him something. So Jeremiah went and he described, I saw him, the potter, working at the wheel, the potter's wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. After seeing this, God spoke to Jeremiah and said, Can I not do with my people as this potter has done? Like clay in the hands of a potter, so are my people in my hand. So this image will remain before us as we gather and worship and reflect as a reminder for us to be a people in God's hand ready to be shaped and formed by him. And this story comes from Jeremiah, but the idea goes all the way back to the very beginning, which we reflected on last week. Last Sunday, we considered the story of creation and how God shaped and formed humanity from a lump of clay and formed us into his image. Uh, one of the ways we reflected on this last week was by playing with Play-Doh together. Uh, if you remember last week, if you were here, you got to grab some and play with it. We have more. Uh, if you look out there on the table, there's still Play-Doh. Some, some people said, I was able to listen a lot better just having something to fidget with. So if that's you, go grab some more Play-Doh and keep on having fun as we continue this morning. Um, but but we, we played with Plato last week as this tangible reminder of the way that God has formed us in His image from the very beginning and how He continues to redeem us today by forming us into the image of His Son. Just as we read in the dwelling passage, conformed to the image of his son. So uh, we played with Plato last week. In this week's email that I sent out, uh, I had an invitation to engage in another fun creative practice. I asked for you to send me drawings of shapes. Uh, and I received several wonderful drawings and creations from people So now I would like to play a game together called Name That Shape. Are you ready? All right. Name That Shape. Here we go. Let's start here. Triangle. All right. Triangle. Uh, What are these? Triangles. Okay. That's a triangle. Uh, This is a triangle. And that's... All right. You guys are doing great, right? Triangles. All right, let's let's keep going. Name that shape. Square or maybe rectangle, depending, you know, on how you look at it. Rectangle. Couple of rectangles. Rectangles. All right. Some rounded rectangles. All right, we're still going. 
I've got one more for you. Circle. All right. Circles. All right. Circles. And someone sent me a whole circle of circles. I love it. Right? There you go. Um, additionally, I got some, some other, uh, themes here. Received several hearts. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. Got a couple of infinity symbols. Right? There you go. Got some less discernible shapes. Uh, but you know, there you go. Whatever you want to call it. Plasma is what you said. Yeah. Amoeba is maybe another word there. Um, and a few more kind of fun, creative shapes there. Uh, truly, uh, thank you to those of you who shared. Um, there were some amazing, uh, things that I received. Here they are in their fullness, uh, that I pulled from. One more, right? Wonderful, wonderful. So thank you. So what's the point of all of this? Right? Why, why are we looking at shapes? Why are we drawing shapes? What's going on? Well, the point is this. Shapes have identifiable characteristics. Alright? Shapes have identifiable characteristics. When you saw them, you knew that these were triangles. Right? You knew that these were rectangles. You knew that these were circles. Right? Even though each of the triangles is unique with its own style, different colors, different textures, you still knew well, it's a triangle. Right? And same goes with the rectangles and the circles. Right? There's an identifiable shape, even though each one's unique with its own textures and colors and, and such. The same thing is true as we are shaped into the image of Jesus. The same thing is true as we are shaped into the image of Jesus. There is an identifiable shape to the shape of Jesus. There's also many unique ways of being the shape of Jesus, right? The dwelling passage that we read and spent some time together with says that the purpose and the destiny of God's people is to be conformed to the image of the Son, right? Or, the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, God decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love Him along the same lines as the life of his son. Our purpose as people to be as people made in the image of God is to be reshaped and reformed into the image of Jesus. Right? In other places Paul writes, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. In Colossians, he, he tells the church to put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its Creator. 
or to the church in Galatia. He, he tells them, my little children, I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Our purpose is to be formed into the image of Jesus. That's what we're meant to be. And truly, this is redemption and salvation. This past week, I came across this amazing quote from John Wesley. If you guys are familiar with him, 18th century pastor and theologian. And when I read it, I knew I had to share it uh, this morning. It was just too good to pass up. He defines salvation like this. He says, by salvation, I mean not barely according to the vulgar notion, deliverance from hell, or going to heaven, but a present deliverance from sin. A restoration of the soul to its primitive health. Its original purity. A recovery of the divine nature. The renewal of our souls after the image of God. In righteousness, in true holiness, in justice, mercy, and truth. See, true salvation, true redemption is not merely about going to heaven someday, right? We've talked about this before. Rather, true salvation is about being delivered from sin today. True salvation is about having our souls restored even now. True salvation is about being renewed after the image of God, right? This is why God is forming us into the image of Jesus. Because in Jesus, we are redeemed and restored to our true selves as the image of God. But Jesus has an identifiable shape, right? Just like you can look at the shapes that were drawn on the screen and tell if it's a triangle or a rectangle or a circle, you can look at the shape of a life and tell if it looks like Jesus. All right? One of the clearest places we see this is in Philippians 2. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going today. You see, in addition to the narratives of the Gospels, there are a few places in the Bible that very briefly and beautifully sum up the life of Christ, the life of Jesus. Often they appear not as paragraphs, but actually as poetry, uh, broken up into verses, because they're understood as hymns, early hymns. They're often called the Christ hymns of the New Testament. Um, They're hymns that may have been sung uh, together in the early church. One of them is in Colossians 1. We looked at it briefly last week. That begins, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Another one is the opening of the Gospel of John. It begins with that poetic language, in the beginning was the Word. 
The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And yet another of these Christ hymns is here in Philippians 2, where we see the shape of Jesus' life, the shape that we who follow him are being formed into. So let's read Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for coming as Jesus to be with us, to rescue us, and to restore us in your image. God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this beautiful poem very simply describes the shape of Jesus' life. The movements that make something definable, identifiable as Jesus-shaped, right? As I see it, there's three basic movements, right, that define the shape of Jesus' life. Three characteristics that define something as Jesus-shaped, just like three sides of a triangle. There's three basic characteristics that I see here. It's these three movements. Incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. Incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. These are the essentials of Jesus' story. And these are the elements that we are shaped into as we are formed in the image of Jesus. So let's look at each one of them, starting with incarnation. The Philippians 2 Christ hymn begins like this. Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing 
by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. The first movement of this Christ hymn begins almost like a mirror image of the creation story that we looked at last week, right? At creation, God made human beings in the image and likeness of God. But here we see Jesus, who is God, being made in human likeness. Do you see the echo, the mirror image here? Right? The idea is this, God begins restoring humanity by becoming human. God begins restoring humanity by becoming human. This is what we mean by the word incarnation. Incarnation, right? It's a fancy theological word, but it very simply means in the flesh or with flesh. Have you ever been to a Mexican restaurant and ordered chili con carne, right? Love me some chili con carne, right? Dip some chips in that. Mm. It's great, right? I'll, I'll, I'll keep going with that. Well, it literally means chili with meat. Chili con carne. Chili with meat. And so when Christian theologians talk about incarnation, it's really a fancy way of saying God with meat. Right? God in the flesh. Right? Jesus is God in the flesh. God with meat on. All right? And this first movement, incarnation, is huge. I mean, it is huge. It could have gone completely differently. In fact, in almost every other ancient religion, it does go completely differently. And the passage points this out. Right? God could have used his own godness. Jesus could have used his own godlikeness to his own advantage. God could have stayed distant from humanity. God could have rejected and abandoned humanity. Or he could have punished humanity by forcing us into servitude and hard labor and slavery. That's exactly what happens in a lot of ancient myths. The gods get fed up with humanity or just create humanity to begin with as servants and slaves for the gods. Or rather than rejecting us or oppressing us, God could have simply destroyed us. Oh man, this is too, too messy, too bad. I'm just going to get rid of it all. But God did not do any of these things. God did not reject us. God does not oppress us. God has not destroyed us. Rather, God became one of us. God became one of us. In Jesus, God was made into human likeness. God became human. And when God came, he did not come as a rich ruler, lording it over others, keeping himself at a distance up in some high tower. When he came, he did not make much of himself. Rather, he made himself nothing. He was born into a poor family. 
His first cradle was an animal's food trough, a manger. These are the things we've reflected on over Christmas time, right? The story that we return to again and again. As Jesus grew up, it was not in Jerusalem, the great capital of God's people. It wasn't in Rome, the great capital of the world at the time. But rather, it was in the nowhere town of Nazareth with its no-good reputation, right? One of the people who would become a follower of Jesus hears that he's from Nazareth and goes, can anything good come from Nazareth? That's what Nazareth was known for. And that's where God grew up when he came as a human. There's something amazing in all of this, right? I mean, just the fact that he was born at all, right? I mean, Jesus didn't just zap himself down here as an adult, you know, fully formed and ready to go. Rather, he was born of Mary. And then he grew up. Like he, he actually went through all those long years of growing up. He was a baby. And then he was a child. And then he was an adolescent, right? I mean, God has encountered puberty. God's experienced that strange, awkward stage of life that we all go through. Jesus went through all of it. As a child, he had parents. Mary. And then his stepfather, Joseph. And the Gospel of Luke says that he was obedient to them as he grew up. God, the creator of all things, grew up as a child, obedient to a man and a woman named Mary and Joseph. What kind of God does this? What kind of God does this? And then when he did finally grow up and become an adult, he continued being near people. Right? He began his ministry uh, and he is regularly seen among the crowds, among the people, around dinner tables. He calls ordinary people to himself like fishermen and tax collectors. He develops a reputation as a friend of sinners. And though he does teach and give instruction, he's also known as a generous servant to whom many come for healing and for care. All of this is the story of the incarnation. God who became human, took on flesh, dwelt among us. This God who draws near, doesn't remain distant, but draws near. And draws near not only spiritually, but physically has drawn near to this earth by becoming part of it. As he is made in human likeness and lives a human life. But this is only the beginning of the story. There is more to a Jesus-shaped life than just being human, right? The Christ hymn continues. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, 
even death on a cross. The story moves from incarnation to crucifixion. And we've already seen glimpses of this throughout Jesus' life, right? I mean, he didn't come to to grasp at things for himself. Rather, he came and gave of himself. He did not come to be served, but came as a servant. All of this is scandalous and entirely upside down. A God who becomes human and lives a humble life. That alone is an amazing story. But the Jesus-shaped life goes, in the words of a song by a Christian rock band called My Epic, lower still. The story of Jesus goes lower still. It's an incredible song uh, that puts this part of the story in to much more poetic language than I could. I would play it for you, but like I said, they are a very intense Christian rock band, and I just don't think you guys would probably appreciate that. A few of you would, uh, and and if you would, go listen to it, but I'm not going to do that here. But let me read some of the words from this song to you, uh, because they trace the story of Jesus' life from his birth to the Last Supper to the Garden of Gethsemane, to the cross. Here's how the song goes. It begins, Look, he's covered in dirt. The blood of his mother has mixed with the earth, and she is just a child who's throbbing in pain from the terror of birth by the light of a cave. Now they've laid that small baby where creatures come eat like a meal for the swine who have no clue that he is still holding together the world that they see. They don't know just how low he has to go lower still. Look now, he is kneeling, he is washing their feet. Though they're all filthy fishermen, traders, and thieves, now he's pouring his heart out. And they're falling asleep. But he has to go lower still. There is greater love to show. Hands to the plow. Further down now. Blood must flow. Beat in his face. Tear the skin off his back. Lower still. Lower still. Strip off his clothes. Make him crawl through the streets. Lower still. Lower still. Hang him like meat on a criminal's tree. Lower still. Lower still. Bury his corpse in the earth like a seed. Like a seed. Lower still. Lower still. Jesus' life is shaped like sacrifice. A constant movement of lower still. He descended from heaven to life on earth. 
He descended from life on earth to death, and not only death, but even death on a cross, the most shameful of ancient deaths. He descended from dying on the cross to being buried in a grave. Lower still. Lower still. And all of this was to show us God's generous, self-giving love. To save humanity, he became human. To deliver us from death, he died. To save us from sin, he became sin by dying a sinner's death on the cross. This Jesus-shaped life runs entirely counter to our American life. American values count success on a graph up and to the right, right? Is it trending up and to the right? This constant ascent. But Jesus' life is one of constant descent. Lower still. Lower still. But it does not end there. The Christ hymn moves from humiliation to exaltation. From crucifixion to resurrection. It says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is the essence of Christian faith. Without the resurrection, there would be no cause for hope. There would be no reason for faith. Without resurrection, the incarnation would have just been a temporary period of history. Another story of another person who once lived. The crucifixion would just be a tale of tragedy, perhaps even failure. But the incarnation is a story of eternal love and the crucifixion is a story of victory and salvation because of the resurrection. Because Jesus is risen. The early Christians summed up their whole faith in the simple confession, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. These words call to mind the whole story of Jesus. They are the culmination of this Christ hymn, and they are meant to remind us of the whole thing, the incarnation, the crucifixion, and ultimately, the resurrection. This is the shape of Jesus' life. And it's what we are being shaped into as we are formed in the image of Jesus. So what does this look like for us? 
What does it look like for us to be shaped and formed into the image of Jesus? Well, we're going to continue going deeper into these throughout this year, in the winter, in the spring. But for now, let me just give you a few words that I think we can carry with us as we are shaped into the image of Jesus. The incarnation looks like presence. Being a people who are present. Not distant from one another. Not alone and isolated. But present. And this is counter to so much of what we're encountering today. It is so easy to be isolated. All of our technology is constantly keeping us from being actually present. And it is a wonderful gift that we have cameras in here and that people can tune in and watch. But there are so many things that keep us from being truly present to one another. Because we're just living through screens, through computers, through apps and videos. To live a Christ-shaped life means to take the incarnation seriously. That means we don't remain distant from one another. We don't remain distant and disconnected from our own physical bodies. But we are present in the world around us and with each other. The crucifixion for us looks like sacrifice and service living lives that are not constantly grasping at things for ourselves, not living by the values of our culture up and to the right, constant ascent, climbing the ladder, so on and so forth. But rather, living with open hands, pouring ourselves out, sacrificing and giving, serving generously, not holding on to things for our own advantage, for our own benefit with tight tight fists, but living openly, generously, lives of sacrifice and service. And then resurrection. I've had a little bit of a hard time figuring out what is a good word to put to this uh, as, as we imagine, as we think of what it looks like to live as resurrection people. And the best word that I came up with is the word imagination. To be a people who actually have an imagination that's alive and not dead. That we can actually be a people with hope in the world. That we can look at a place, and even if there's not life in it, we have the imagination to see the life that could be there. This is what resurrection is. To be a people with imaginations to see the kingdom of God everywhere we go. To be people who are truly and really alive. This is what it looks like to live a Christ-shaped life. As we are formed into the image of Jesus, incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection, We become a people of presence, of sacrifice and service, and of wonderful God, Holy Spirit-empowered imagination. And so this is what we will continue exploring throughout this year.
What does it look like to be formed in the image of Jesus and to become this kind of people? Remember, we saw a lot of different triangles, each with its own texture, each with its own unique style. But when you looked at it, you knew it was a triangle. And the same thing is true of us as we are formed into the image of Jesus. Each one of us brings our own unique personality, our own unique style. We're not becoming Jesus robots. You are becoming you, but you can become like Jesus. So may it be so. Amen.